0: WCBN-FM, the Sun Ra Orchestra, and the Regents of the University of Michigan would like to remind you that truth is the most precious commodity. Demand the truth. Accept no substitutes.
1: People, some of the time you can fool all the people, all the time.
2: You can fool some of the people, some of the time you can't fool all the people, all the time. You can fool some of the people, some of the times can't fool all the people, all the time. You can fool some of the people, some of the time can all the people, all the time. You can fool some of the people, some of the time you can fool all the people all the time. Some people, some of the time, can't the people all the time.
1: Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. My name is T Hetzel, and today in the studio, Richard Price. Richard, welcome. Thanks for coming on Living Writers.
0: No, oh, thank you.
1: I was surprised. I thought King Crimson was going to kind of bring us in on this like huge. I don't know what I was expecting, <laughs> but there was a little. I, uh, there was a solemn King Crimson moment.
0: <laughs> so yeah, a little lugubrious there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no reflection on us right now. At I hope this not. Moment. Richard's in town with his latest novel, Lush Life. Reading tonight at Shaman Drum at 7 p.m. Uh, are you going? What are your What are your upcoming cities? Because you're in the midst of the
0: book just tour. Close your eyes and think of any city at random, and just keep going for about three minutes. And the answer is yes.
1: Really? It, so this uh, is it's a insane. Barat, so so they've got you hitting like 20 cities. You'd say
0: uh, close to yeah.
1: You're you're a really big deal, Richard Price. Well, you are, you're like you it, don't need it to tell me that. It is eighth
0: novel I never had a you know, I you know, I think this one's taken off like none of them have ever taken off. I just feel like something caught up to me in a good way, which probably means I have some kind of fatal disease that I don't know about yet to balance things out, but it's it's um it's it's good.
1: So this is different. Okay, cuz I was thinking this was maybe the swelling the surge that you experienced ever since your first novel, The Wanderers.
0: No, I don't. I don't surge much. No. Um, I, I, had Surfing. A su- I had a surge about 92 and now I'm uh double surging. <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah. Cause the, your first novel, The Wanderers, you were 24 when that was published. So, yeah, was um,
0: 1974,
1: uh, did you did you write that when you because I saw in your your history you were uh, you went to Columbia for an MFA and that was that was when there weren't there wasn't that proliferation of the MFA programs that, no, that we was, see now.
0: No, I was. Well, I started writing it while I was an undergraduate at Cornell, uh, but I you know just I was just trying to remember things in the Bronx because I was never really going to go back there, and so you get that urge to like make it all crystallize.
1: Why did you know that at that time even?
0: Because who on earth goes to Cornell and then decides to go back to the Bronx? Um, it's just no. It, w- it wasn't about if I liked it or disliked it. I did, you know, you just get that feeling like life is going to take you further and further away, and so the place was only going to exist in your memory, and then you get this desire to to, like I said, to make it crystallize because what you can't remember is gone, and so the whole it's like your life is gone, your previous life. Um, also. You know, I felt like such a fish out of water uh, coming from a housing project in the Bronx to, you know, an Ivy League school. And what happens sometimes is when you get kids that come from very kind of rough backgrounds or coming from a long, long way, they tend to act more on campus more bronxy
1: right right uh
0: than they ever did in a bronx can you give they us develop- an
1: example of like what that would what does that even mean like flashback to yourself on cornell's campus no, you know you know
0: <laughs> you just you just sound more rocky you know and you know speak more through your sinuses and you know sort of dumb yourself down um You know, so like I I, I know on the surface. Yeah. But it's like this anxiety of like you're just trying to say I am because you're so overwhelmed by everybody that, you know, I'm sure this happens with uh, I know there was a guy who was a Faulkner scholar at a university I taught taught at uh, upstate New York. And the guy was from Mississippi and he sounded like one of the Snopes. And it turns out that in Mississippi, his father was the headmaster of a private school, and I'm sure he was much more cracker. You know, at this university, than he ever was in Mississippi. Like growing
1: up, yeah, he just yeah. had to take that idea. Well, there's so much of this other identity that's being sort of pushed at you when you're at this uh, uni- yeah. a university setting, even if it's not Ivy League. Well, you
0: know, it, it, university is just one thing. You do, if, if when you move on, wherever you are, it's not what you are used to, and you and you get freaked out a little bit. I remember uh, when The Wanderers was published; it was all about these kids in a in a housing project, and uh, you know, people got sort of overreacted to it because it, you know there was a little violence in it but it was like nobody was writing about housing projects so you know everybody got huffy and dramatic. Right. And Where's the
1: drawing room? Where's yeah. when's
0: tea served? But <laughs> um, it, it sort of like made it even worse for me to like lose that sort of like artificial Bronx persona because it's now being reinforced by this book and I, I do remember uh, about six months after the book came out doing a reading somewhere in New York City uh, you know, in my heavy Bronx accent that never existed. <laughs> and some guy in the audience came up to me. He's a middle-aged guy. looked look like, a, you know, a laborer or you know, union labor guy. And he says, so you went to Cornell, didn't you? And I said, well, yeah. He said, that's amazing. You know, I'm starting to smile, you know. And then he says, because my daughter goes to community college and she speaks better English than you. You And know, so and he, he called sort of you looked, on sort of that Yeah, but facade. It wasn't like I was putting it on. He, he was, yeah, it was like a, you know, who are you patronizing?
1: Right, right. But he couldn't understand the layers that made you do necess- Yeah, but that's... So what did you do then? I couldn't you understand
0: just- the layers that was making me do that. Well, yeah. you know, it was kind of like, well, that's a keeper. You know, um, <laughs> here I am. Uh, it's 25 years, 30 years later. I'm telling you the story. So I guess it's a keeper.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, you, know, you, you think you go away for schooling, but then you come home to get Yeah, my parents bit, were too. always
0: like, you know, we sent you to this college and you come back. You sound stupid and when you left. There's no such word as ain't. Look it up in a dictionary. It ain't there. I said, well, can we retread a little bit
1: here? Well, you know, since let me... Uh, just read the, the short bio from the back of Lush Life, just out with FS&G. Richard Price is the author of seven novels, including Clockers, Freedomland, and Samaritan. He has received an Academy Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters and shared a 2007 Edgar Award as a co-writer of HBO's miniseries, The Wire. This is going to just bear with me here richard for mm-hmm. a moment the um the academy award in literature from the american academy of arts and letters what you is a that? Problem exa- with
0: that? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> no, but what does that? What does that mean? That well, that award? I'm. I, you, you know don't, I should you be don't, fully There's no aware red of
0: carpet. You don't get to wear a Balenciaga gown. <laughs> See, it's that's got what Nothing was... to do with cleavage. It's you know. Just, Damn. <laughs> it's 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 just like you know they give out annual awards for you know it's not the same as you are now a, a member of the academy. It's just a recognition award. Um, that they give out.
1: And and is there a party so you actually go somewhere but you're not in the gown?
0: (laughs) Well, you sort of sit around with a bunch of old fusty people and, you know, a couple of guys in bow ties whose books you've been reading for 35 years. Mm. And uh, everybody's, you know, having a vodka tonic and a little plastic cup, you know. (laughs) It's you know it's not like wacky,
1: right? Right. The elbows are slightly out. Yeah. huh. I looked up just for kick, kicks the academy, and I was sort of. I, it looks like it's something like for writers. It's like being in the Supreme Court. You get appointed for life. Yeah. Um. And they um, they look mostly like men. Like <laughs> not to be all well. Well,
0: the males are yeah definitely and, but. Yeah. Um <laughs> I, I don't know, I didn't do a head count.
1: <laughs> yeah, you didn't. Okay. Some people were wearing gowns, no. I'm just kidding. But that's really that's amazing though, Academy Award in literature for um but I also actually really and you're probably sick of talking about your awards because you've you've like you've said this is this is your eighth novel and and so you've kind of probably had accolades being you're you're no stranger to them. But this 2007 Ed, Edgar Award that, that that seems that like a was, really big deal. Well, as well, that was a
0: group award given to the writers as in the best dramatic TV series. Uh, the Wire won, so it was about five five or six guys, you know, bumping into each other. And uh, we also won the Writers Guild of America award for dramatic TV writing.
1: The Wire deserves that. You guys, finally, you deserve yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. The
0: thing about The Wire, the thing that finally made The Wire catch on, is the. Uh, the the rise of the uh, season DVD because the show is just impossible to watch an hour a week and if you miss a week if you miss you know it's you know it's 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 a very slow moving Byzantine show. And so people kept hearing how good it was, but you know. But what,
1: if they just kind of ducked into one episode, what you they really wouldn't...
0: have to do is you got to pop a you got to pop a DVD in there and sit there for four hours, and then you'll get it.
1: And that's what happens. That's what when yeah. I've been t- is that what people tell you happens to their experience if they haven't been. Well, everybody
0: it? I know who who's come up to me, it they're, they're all saying, "Wow, I went out and I got the DVD for season one, and you know, I sat there for twenty hours." and mm-hmm. And all the college kids uh, are really into it. So, like, my kids, that one of them is in college, one is just out. I mean, I had published eight books and, and written ten movies, So, and I've written five lousy episodes at a wire, and all of a sudden I'm, like, cool.
1: <laughs> Finally, Dad. <laughs> yeah, so. that's, no, that's really great. Those, well, which episodes did you, did you write, Richard? Which ones were you? Well, I mean, I don't know how to describe
0: them. I mean, oh, two, okay. two for one year, two for another year, oh, and, okay. and one for this year. I,
1: yeah, I guess it doesn't. Go, make sense to go into the storyline. Yeah, was, in well, well, was it in the
0: docks? Episode 403, 507, you know. <laughs> was it
1: in the schools in the docks? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. I mean, the
0: most memorable one, I think, was in season four, where it's a homeroom scene, and one of the kids flips out and slices another girl's face uh, after she's being teased. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was like the third episode I wrote. But, I mean, it really is like a, a team effort. It's sort of like, you know, uh, an intellectual assembly line. You know the the whole writing of the show it's like all these episodes that are so complex, and right, right everybody's taking turns writing them, so you really got to be in lockstep what and you're if, writing
1: excuse me, if you're not in the at the helm um lockstep oh no um if you're not at the helm, does that mean you're also you're still involved as the storyline's progressing, or were you just in the room for those five and you were at the helm for those? Well, I, thing, I was just the wondering is how
0: everybody works. everybody who like Lehane and Pelicanos, uh, whoever came in as guest writers? You know, it's in Baltimore, so you're going to go just da- just you're going to go down there from New York or wherever you're coming from New England, and you'll go down there for two or three days just for the story meetings on your specific episode. But you'll have have read the episodes that have been written leading up to yours, because everybody's got to set up perfectly. What went before, and then what goes after?
1: And there might be people that have to kind of touch into the story because they're yeah, and up
0: then you'll the you'll write stuff in one episode, and then they'll realize it's too early for this type of incident. So some of your stuff is going to get pushed up, and sometimes stuff that they had in the previous episode they had too much, and so they're going to have to shove it into yours. You know, it's like check your ego at the door.
1: But but I guess in certain projects that's okay. Like this one seems like you have how you said it's an intellectual assembly line. It's that's still something like. Yeah, speaking I wouldn't be interested the, the
0: in doing this smart. if it wasn't for the people that I was doing it with. You know, and and it, I mean it was just a damn good show. I mean there's nothing like it, um, and I just wanted to be part of it. But you certainly don't do it for the money, and you don't do it for the glory. Well, you do, sort of.
1: Yeah, because yeah. now all the glory, like you said, it's finally like The Wire's time or something. Yeah, I, I feel reflecting. like
0: I'm getting a free ride off my participation in The Wire because it gets mentioned in all the book reviews and everything.
1: Oh, okay. That's great. Well, well no, well, it's... Um but it, I guess because you wanted to be part of the project because some, it, it sounds like a perfect fit for something that you are well, extremely what, what good happened,
0: at. Well, what happened was is David Simon, who is the creator, I met him in 1992 when I published Clockers, and he published Homicide A Life on the Streets. And uh, we had the same editor, John Sterling. And the editor set us up for a play date, you know, <laughs> and uh, it was the night of the Rodney King verdict. Oh. And we were in New York and they were rioting in Jersey City. So we went over to Jersey City to see what was happening. Uh and that was our first play date. And so you That's know we've been, we've been sort of long distance friends since then. And he told me that the wire was based on clockers, you know. Um you know, that was the, the starter's east. You know, but he took it way, way uh a high low i mean i I barely got out of the projects and clockers. he took it all the way to the state legislature and city hall and and the media all and, the
1: layers of the game yeah i
0: mean <laughs> he really he really got into the institutions um, and so I was kind of honored to uh you know have you know been an inspiration for that, but when he asked me to come on as writer, I was a little nervous because i think I assumed I think he thought that I knew an awful lot more than I did because I put everything I had into clockers and then he just rocketed out of there and thought I had all this in reserve that I didn't write about, so I was really nervous about you know you know coming up
1: and is is and so is this like maybe in the involvement in the the wire is this also sort of like uh, why Lush Life also came into your, to be. No, as I well, mean, it,
0: it, no, that, that's a tail wagging the dog. Oh, okay. I mean, I write the way I write. Right, you right, know, right. And I mean. if 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 I, if I wound up writing the the wire for a couple episodes, that had no effect on you know my long distance writing because I mean I I was. He asked me because that's what I write about. It right. wasn't like, wow, oh, right. now I learned yeah. about all this stuff. <laughs> right. It's like I knew about this stuff, you know, from the jump.
1: No, I didn't mean I didn't mean that. Uh Richard, I I meant like just that um go, going back into the like going to this world that cuz you said you investigated like that was the, the subject of matter of clockers, and then mm-hmm. this is really with the cops and with the projects, and um, but maybe we can talk about collaborative work versus the novel and the solo when we after okay. the break. I, okay, you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back. If you're just joining us today on Living Writers, Richard Price. He's in town uh, with his latest no- novel, Lush Life. I'm T. Hetzel, and I'm so pleased to have you here for sure. Yep,
0: I'm still here. <laughs>
1: you're still here. I know. Not, you didn't leave after the first 15 minutes.
0: <laughs> so far, so good. So
1: far. Knock, I'm knocking on my head. So, we were talking a little bit about uh, the collaborative nature of work for The the Wire and right. and and, sc- and probably screenwriting because you've been, you've done screenwriting as well, Richard, so is that similar or is that a completely see, I don't know.
0: Screenwriting is I mean, writing for The Wire sort of transcends you know, writing for a screen because it is The Wire and it is David Simon and it is sort of like, you know, it's like a real peer effort um, and you, you know, you do feel the show is kind of noble and we're getting paid peanuts, so there's very little pressure, you know, to make, uh, the, you know, the studio happy.
1: And is that because they're, you're the writers? Because it's an HBO—it's like a heavy-hitting HBO series. So to me, Was. it's like, well, yeah— I know it's over. (laughs) I can't believe that. Anyway, but that seems strange. Like, is that so that's probably why the writers went on strike, because if you guys aren't getting. No,
0: no, no, we weren't getting any money because it wasn't making any money. I mean, it never, you know, we never got nominated for an Emmy or anything like that because not enough people saw it. You know, and that's why it took four years before we got recognition. Um, uh, But, you know, screenwriting is a whole different thing. I mean, that's a job. You know, I mean, that's that's the show dogs you raise to feed your kittens. Um, you know, that's just about money. You know, you, I mean, I'll take a job. It's it'll be an interesting project. I'll write as as well as I can because my name is on it. Mm-hmm. But what happens once I turn in that first draft is completely out of my control. I mean, it has to do with the alignment of the stars, uh, both movie stars and cos- cosmo stars. And it's got to do with budgets. It's got to do with who's available. Um, it's got to do with so many things that have nothing to do with the writing, whether something goes all the way. And when something goes all the way, it has nothing to do with the writing, whether it's going to be a good movie or not. So that one, I feel like this is how I got to pay my bills. I'm going to do that type of writing. I mean, The Wire was the opposite. I mean, they were literally paying me peanuts. and um, But you know, I but mean, but you care, but you care, you know, and it's it, it's not all that time consuming, and it's worth it. You want, you know, you want to go to heaven, so
1: <laughs> that's true. By being part of the wire, I think you definitely have a few steps in that direction, Richard. Um,
0: well, not too soon, I hope.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not to wish it on you. It's stroke of good good fortune with this this book. Although it does sound so rigorous with their their the tour. So, but I, you'll get through it. Get, and, and maybe you'll become, some people listen in Seattle, so maybe you'll, you're heading out there so they can show up. and. and well, we're not an in employment.
0: Seattle now. <laughs> no,
1: you're Wait, you're my, in my, Michigan, my, Dorothy and Toto. <laughs> I'll, I'll be Toto. All right, you can be whichever. Okay, what are we saying? Let's get back to the writing.
0: But, but seriously,
1: folks. <laughs> we need some symbols. Um but but the so so what about the the writing of the novels then? Because with this collaborative writing, it seems like because you cared about mm-hmm. D- David Simon's project and the people you worked with, you respected their their methods of working and their writing. Um, how how is it? So how is it to go back into your own rhythms where you're just you're solo well, in the writing? Well, the, the difference novel. between
0: screenplays and novels. Is screenplays is like just going out and hope, hoping you can get sex you know novels okay. it's like falling in love you know and you might actually marry it um <laughs> uh, i mean novels take forever for me i take i just five years between books and it's the only thing i'm going to write including the wire where i'm in control of the final product i mean nobody can there's not one word that's not mine that I didn't choose to put in a book, whereas in screenplays, like I said, it's like when you know, it's like buying a lottery ticket. Maybe you win, maybe you don't. In uh, the wire, you know, it's it's through it's filtered through the sensibilities of of the creators. But you know, this is novels are what I'm, what I'm about. You know, and you know they, if if you work out the advance against the man hours that you put in or the person hours. Um, <laughs> or, or, or the uh, Native American. I don't know. I, read, I was know.
1: like, that's very no, nice I, of you to no. come back, but don't worry. I,
0: I was being facetious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm getting paid about half what a plumber would make writing writing this novel. You well, know.
1: They, you know, they've got unions. You yeah, know, they're but, working. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah.
0: But this this you know, like having a book is there's nothing quite like it. I mean, for me. Well, I mean, you've th- made this it. have created
1: it. This, this is, is not... what I
0: was put on earth for. So.
1: Yes. So, what else could. Yeah, there's no other choice. Like, it's not as if yeah, you could I, do it.
0: You, know, you know, I'm tired of being a sex god. I just, you know, there's nothing left. You know, so. <laughs> Richard oh, now Price starts autist.
1: to say no. <laughs> no you well,
0: can catch my act in Hot Pants near the Holland Tunnel. <laughs>
1: <sighs> there's a show on Fridays here called Hot Pants. Like Or tight pants. Well, well, anyway, I'm sure your hot pants are tight. What am I saying? Again, these divergences. Get back to the writing. Well, you said five years between books. Richard, does that mean that, um, does that mean, can you just, not to be, well, I am, I'm, I'm being breaking it apart here. Does that mean it's you're, you're within the book and then it goes to the editor after five years? Are you talking about, I haven't looked at the publishing history of the eight, but no, he, what is here's,
0: it? No. Here's been the recent process of of the, the clockers, Samaritan, Freedomland, and this one. It's like, I have learned through screenwriting that not everything I write has to be based on my autobiography. Thank God. <laughs> you know, autobiography and talent are not Siamese twins. And you can go, it's a big world out there. And you can go out there. And this is especially important for, I think, y- younger writers. You know, you don't have to, like, stare at your navel until you get hit by a bus. You know, it's like, just embrace the world. I mean, learn about something, for God's sake. You know, uh, whatever you write, autobiography, anyhow. Because, you know, the, the w- what the characters it. do... And what they do when they hit a fork in the road is informed by what you would do. So, I mean, it's all autobiography, yeah. but that doesn't mean it has to literally be about you and your therapist.
1: Um, Although there is an HBO miniseries. About yeah, <laughs> Just that was inevitable. <laughs> yeah.
0: But actually, that's supposed to be pretty good. Um, anyways, so w- w- the, what I do is there's something I want to write about. Like in this case, The Lush Life, as well, I've, I've always wanted to write about the Lower East Side of New York. Uh, for maybe 25 years. Mm-hmm. And I just, because my family started out like just about every other family in America, uh, but not in a sentimental way. But, I mean, it was a really, it was a rough, rough place. You know, had the highest population density in the world in 1900, the Lower East Side. You in know, the world? In the world, that one neighborhood. So and we're it talking also,
1: Calcutta, like any of the places yes. that you think of now. Wow.
0: And uh, if... <laughs> You, you know, you you got off the boat at Ellis Island, you know, you staggered into the neighborhood, and from the moment you put your bags down, you try to figure out how to get the hell out of here. And I think it's the most important neighborhood in American history in terms of the people that started there and came out and rose to positions of power or success, uh, both uh, legal and illegal. Um,
1: And now you're showing the shift in the population that's in the Lower East Side. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say— the the Chinese immigrants, right? we Weren't a plank.
0: Well, what I was going to say— That's how it started out. And everybody knows, you know, in a sentimental way about, you know, this is where it all started for the Eastern Europeans. And then gradually, say, by World War II, it was, you know, mostly Hispanic and African American. And some of the old guard Jews were still there— I'd say by 1970 up to 1990, it became the most dangerous neighborhood in New York City. It was just a drug drug uh, souk.
1: Is that the, the time period for the book? No. Should, when is it? Is it mid-90s? Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh,
0: <laughs> then what happened in, in, in the early 90s is Giuliani came to power, America's mayor. Um, you're lucky he's now New York's ex-mayor, and that's it. Um Very lucky. Um, and he he had this thing called Giuliani time, which means you lock up anybody who looks at your cross-eyed. That and the fact that real estate needed a place to go. Real estate's the greatest crime fighter in the world. And uh, so the neighborhood was transformed between active policing and trying to create a niche market in real estate. The place went from the most dangerous area in the world to, like, uh, Montparnasse for yuppies you know <laughs> and so you have all you know the, for the last 10 years you have all these MFAs that are just you know coming into the Lower East Side like people used to go to Berkeley except there's no politics it's all you know and you know you, you know bright people who are going to live forever and you know from comfortable backgrounds and that's what the Lower East Side has become but when I went down there, that's what I knew. I was aware of. But what I didn't realize is about six separate worlds. You know, it's, it looks more like afterbirth than rebirth. I mean, you've got the, the, what you said, the um, huge population of Fujianese Chinese, uh, a lot of which are, are illegal. And they're living cheek to jowl like, like the Jews lived 110 years ago in the same, you know, uh, squalid kind of desperate measures. Next to them, you'll have a flaw through... Um, with two people in it that goes for $2 million in the adjoining building, same contractor in 1880. Then you have, you know, the Laboemers, you know, the the young kids that are going there now. But you also have the housing projects, which are pretty much immortal. They're not going anywhere. So you got a whole big bunch of housing projects. And, and is you got that like
1: Lemlicks? Yeah, in I called
0: this? it the Lemlicks. But, okay. but in real life, it's the Smith houses and the Baruch houses. And... You also um, have the Orthodox Jews, who, like the Chinese, are in a world of their own. And um, man, it's uh, what I try to do in this book is write when worlds collide, because these people are uh, completely invisible to each other. Um, they They occupy the same physical space, and they 're not hostile to each other they they just don 't see each other
1: right and you even have one of your one of the most one of the the pivotal characters actually even um thinks about thinks about this reflects on how he never knew being invisible was a superpower and it was his superpower well, so yeah well, like the, well that maybe was why you have that, that him
0: was in like their... an inv- yeah but i mean it a... it's it 's like you know it's like it 's like these young comfortable kids you know the only time they interact is it 's three in the morning. Two kids from the projects get a gun. They go into Ludlow Street or one of the, you know, streets with a lot of bars and clubs. And, you know, they flash a gun in front of front of two kids that were bar hopping. And, you know, they make a scary noise or sound scary. And they assume the kids, the, you know, the people that they're holding up are just going to fork over whatever's in their pocket and everybody can have Chinese food. But what happens is that these kids that are 3 a.m. coming down the street and all of a sudden they're braced by, by two kids and a gun. You know, first of all they're bombed. Second of all, they've they've lit, led very sheltered lives and, and sometimes TV. they think TV they're in and a movie. Movies. Right. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes they think they're in a movie. So rather than do the appropriate thing is which is like sort of look down, give them the wallet and live to fight another day. You know they go all John Wayne on these kids, and these kids have never. What's wrong with this person? You know, and next thing you know, a shot gets fired. Because they're
1: scared too, is what. Well, they, part I don't know if they're or...
0: poor babies. They're the, oh, ones no. with the gun. You know, <laughs> yeah, but right. um, no. But I mean, it's like they th- they thought all you had to do yeah. is go boo with a gun, and you got Chinese food. Right. You
1: right. know,
0: but you, they didn't count on this idiot. You know, right. uh, giving them a bad movie line, and then moving, stepping towards them, and next, you know, and you get a fight or flight reaction. Everybody runs in opposite directions except the dead guy. Mm-hmm. You get headlines for five days because tabloid headline: the, the 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 most beloved victim is aspiring actor or aspiring at which means waiter waitress. You know, and uh, you know the beauty and the beast. You know, stars in his eyes came from Iowa and found death on Orchard Street. You know. And but And day six, everybody goes back to their respective worlds and starts ignoring each other's again
1: which you also show in the book yeah. where the Maddie, detective Maddie Clark is trying to fight that he 's trying to put the case down and he 's trying to keep, it, keep yeah. it going
0: i mean the reason why the, the reason why I made it uh, uh, centered this book around a homicide is not, not because I don't, I'm not a detective writer. I don't really care about genre fiction. Uh, frankly, I think it's embarrassing, except for the guys who can transcend it. Um, but if you have a very complex l- landscape, like I just described, it's six separate worlds. I was trying to find a way to write about it that didn't feel like repitage, that didn't feel like a travelogue. Mm. that And, you know, uh, a murderer is a lazy man's way through a plot. All you got to do is follow the investigation and it'll give you an the, automatic spine and
1: it's, spurs off of it. Yeah,
0: the I mean you, you just you just ride that horse straight through the landscape and everything they do makes sense chronologically and narratively and because investigations will take you here and there and here and there but it's always pulled back to this central urge to find out what happened. And before you know it, whether you found out who did it or not, you've basically seen this whole world in a very streamlined way.
1: Right. I'm so glad you said that, Richard, because I was thinking about the murder as as the the use of the murder because we sort of see what happens at the very beginning, you know, rather than trying to solve it. But but let's come back. We'll take a short break. Okay. You're listening to Living Writers today, Richard Price. We'll be right back. Oh, the day
2: with tears. gonna go to the bathroom and I'm 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 gonna go to the bathroom and I'm
1: Welcome back. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today, Richard Price with Lush Life. Thanks to Jesse Johnston for his ever, ever artful engineering. So, Richard, we've been talking about Lush Life now for a while, so maybe we should give the listeners a chance to hear some of it. Well, I
0: I, I could read a short passage which describes— um one of these spontaneous street shrines that go up on the sidewalk and at the spot where the kid was murdered. And maybe this description of the shrine will give you a sense of what this world is like. And it's through the eyes of the the, invest, the, the head detective who's in investigating the murder, and his name is Maddie. Maddie was leaning against a car hood a few doors down from the urban still life that had blossomed in front of 27 Eldridge. The shrine was a few days old now and threatened to span the width of the sidewalk from stoop to curb. The offerings, as far as he could tell, represented three of the worlds that made up the universe down here. Latino, young gifted in white, and geezer crackpot hippie. No word from the Chinese. There were dozens of lit botanica candles, a scattering of coins on a velvet cloth, a reed cross laid flat on a large round stone, a CD player running Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah on an endless loop, a videocassette of Mel Gibson's The Passion still sealed in its box, a paperback of Black Elk Speaks, some kind of unidentifiable white pelt, a few petrified-looking joints, bags of assorted herbs, coils of still-smoldering incense that gave off competing scents, and a jar of olive oil. Taped to the brick, directly above all this, was the front-page headshot of a smiling Isaac Marcus—that's a dead kid—from the first day's New York Post. The headline, his now-notorious last words, Not tonight, my man. Alongside of which someone had cryptically put up an old tabloid photo of Willie Bosket, the 15-year-old urban boogie boy of the 1970s who famously killed someone on the subway, quote, just to see what it felt like. And next to that, a homemade handwritten rant, America cares. war on poverty is a war against the poor, the rest of it illegible. There were even more memorial tokens anchored to the tenement facade from flagpole-like riggings, so that, so that they dangled directly above the murder spot. An open umbrella suspended upside down like a buttercup in which nestled a teddy bear and a beanbag eagle, and a home-crafted tubular steel mobile whose desultorily whose desultory clanging on this nearly windless night truly sounded like morning.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Richard. I, I realized that um, through then as the book, as the novel progresses, we also see how the shrine disintegrates and sort of, yeah, those, I can't find so, those pages. No, no. <laughs> Oh, why not? I probably dog-eared some of them here. But, um, yeah, but that's, that's really great because the, the, the metal mobile actually comes apart. So well, what happens like is a... three
0: days later you go back <laughs> and uh, somebody stole the coins. Or so, the joints. Are uh, the the, only, the, the right. only thing left of the mobile, is it's been scavenged by junkies. And, uh, you know, all, all the stuffed animals look like drowned rats. You <laughs> Not, know, yeah. the, the incense coils just look like spore.
2: You know.
1: So did you so so when you were when you got this idea of like a like something you wanted to investigate, like this this neighborhood, you wanted to be in the lower east side. Right. So did you just did you go there to spend time there? What, what's like what happened? Well,
0: here, here's how 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 it's been working for me the last few books. I'm sort of interested in something that's going on. And I, and sometimes it's tied into a specific area. You know, m- m- given it's me, it's always urban. But I've always been interested in the Lower East Side, so I just started hanging out there, you know, just trying to, like... I'm a great believer in osmosis. So first I just sort of tried to get a feel for the area. I, I mean, I've been going down to the Lower East Side my entire life. I mean, my my father used to get... He had a hosiery store in the Bronx, and he used to get his wholesale hosiery from the Orthodox Jew wholesalers that were always open on Sunday and closed on Saturday. Oh, right. Okay. And but this time I'm going down there, you know, in earnest, you know, and I look for people I hang out with, people who know more than I do, or who do jobs. That um, I'm interested in, in terms of possible characters.
1: So that would be like an. It seems like an easy first start might be a bartender in one of yeah. the places. Yeah, well, basically,
0: that... the, the the three main people I hung out with were two uh, two local detectives from that area. And uh, a restaurant manager, who one of my characters is, is a thieving restaurant manager, and you know it's very. I got all the restaurant managers in this one place to sit down with me and teach me how to steal.
1: Right, what they know, would do at, with the tipping out. Yeah, and, not, <laughs> uh, you know.
0: I assume they are they aren't stealing, otherwise they they would say I don't know. Right. You know. So, but um, you know, it, it, the thing with cops. I mean, I always, always like learning about a world th- with cops because you tend to see things that you would never see. You can walk around and it's a little bit like you're standing on a beach staring at the ocean. All you see is the surface and the sun reflecting off that surface. Being in the back of a police car or responding to calls, um... It's like putting on a snorkel mask and sticking your head under that surface and all of a sudden realizing it's the great barrier reef under there. And nobody would know that unless they have a snorkel mask. So the things that I tend to see from the back of a police car or go with them when a call comes in, I mean, you see human behavior in such extremists that a police presence is required. And it's always the part of the neighborhoods that you wouldn't ever dream of going to on your own. So, I mean, it's like, that's a, like
1: that quality of life vehicle. That's yeah. Well, always that quality of life, omnib- guys.
0: They're, they're, present, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're like a sort of a semi
1: kind of humorous. Comic Rosen- yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, it's kind of like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and Finelli and Smith, you know. Um, I mean, they're so my Greek chorus. And um, hmm. th- but they, you know, th- there's all this hugger mugger about this murder and, and, and all the higher ups can't. Figure out what happened, and you know these Abbott and Costello guys almost by accident, yeah. You know, uh, w- you know, win the lottery, <laughs> right? <laughs>
1: right. Um, so, so the language that you um, actually from. From being immersed in your your book, Richard, and and also actually from watching many episodes of The Wire, I found my language patterns changing. So the rhythm is sort of, I know, especially if you're doing radio and you can't really curse that much, um, <laughs> but um, or when you're calling home, right? Hi, mom. Um, but but the but the rhythms of the language are are so present in, present in here and and I thought it was interesting that in in a previous uh conversation you had with someone um you said oh the dialogue isn't what's driving this it's like you like it's the the plot through it and the and but the dialogue comes very natural to you it's a gift and could you talk about that a little
0: well i mean you know the plots the plot but i you know and i didn't do this consciously but i it's it's a a, two things came together for me which is I just love dialogue you know and um, as you get older as a writer it's like getting older as a householder you tend to throw stuff out and your books tend to become more streamlined as opposed to more verbose and I think at this point I I was trying subconsciously to to be as lean and spare in the storytelling whereas in Clockers I mean it, it was it was like Dombey and Sons. You know, I mean, it was like, you know, a big, giant, fat, encyclopedic, Dickensian thing. You know, it's like one of those Indian novels.
1: And Lawrence yeah. Durrell, like, describing that. Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, hopefully less florid. But, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, mean I, really, I, re- I, really, I really kitchen sink that book. But, I mean, you know, the older you get, the, the, the more you, you realize, I don't need all that. You know, I, I know how to do more with less. So. Well,
1: because I think you said Vonnegut makes it look simple, but that's what's yeah. not simple, well, what, and that's what, what's beautiful. Well, what
0: happens so. is like some people, you read it, and the easier it looks, the harder it was to make it look that easy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Except like- for Richard Brodigan.
1: Oh. <laughs> Why? How so? Uh,
0: no, I don't know. Just oh, okay. Like like, <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> Sorry, I know. started thinking about beer because I was like, yes, it's very hard to make the light gold ale. No. They, people would think a stout is harder, than Oh, well, not. yeah,
0: no. I, I mean, it, all the it's very hard can't... to look easy. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, this book was like four years of hell to and people it it, it reads like a zip. I mean, yes, but it it didn't write like a zip, you know, I threw out a couple hundred pages.
1: You did? Yeah. yeah. How did you cut those out? How Not you...
0: voluntarily. Um, I had, an, had a very good editor. And, is, it the, uh, is it
1: the same editor you worked no, with? It from... the uh, no, it's a new guy. Okay. Farrah
0: Strauss, i have never been with them before.
1: But you trusted him enough? I, well,
0: you know, you have to trust. you got to pick one person and listen. Because <laughs> he who has two watches never knows what time it is. So you got a designated mm. guy you listen to. You know, and he. I had a whole. You know, the the, the murdered kid's family, I mean, they were, like, much bigger in, in the book. And he convinced me that you get their grief very quickly. And so very quickly, it feels redundant to keep hitting that note about they're insane, they're grieving, they're insane, they're grieving. He said, trust me, we got it. Mm. You know, and— um, Trust me, so I did, and, uh, and because, it, it turned out well
1: because your goal was you said the colliding world, so that yeah. would be a smaller part of it so well well, the, well well
0: the 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 dead kid's father uh lives in Riverdale, which is a you know a, a, you know sort of like the northern Bronx, but people in Riverdale never consider themselves people from the Bronx, they're from riverdale um <laughs> it sounds pleasant see the <laughs> irony is that, that with this whole book is that. I'm shifting gears here a little bit. The, iron, the I mean, the thing is, I have kids, and when they were in high school, they knew the Lower East Side better than I did, because they knew where where which bars you don't get carded at. They knew where the best music is playing. They knew where to get the best gelato and all that stuff. But I think what they were a little clueless about was that five generations ago, their great grandfather was mugging people about a hundred yards. From where they were buying their gelato, and in fact, they represented this massive hundred plus year full circle back down to Ludlow street you know and right. I'm, and coming
1: and, to it in a completely different way yeah. like you, you said. know to oblivious. Get you know they 're yeah. you
0: know, part of the lobolimer squad, you know, and I go down there, and you know it 's not for me anymore i i'm 'm I'm I'm an old guy you know um, but i you always associate that place in your head with antiquity. But in fact, it's like the world's most hopping ghost town and, you know, it's just, it's exploding.
1: Yeah. Well, but you also said it looks more like afterbirth than rebirth, right? Yeah, because,
0: you know, everybody, everybody thinks it's a done deal, you know, but real estate is violence. And when when you, it's like tectonic plates of like, we've been here for 60 years. Well, say goodbye to Hollywood because here we come, you know, you know, that stuff, people do not go easily. Or they haven't heard the news that they're not supposed to be there anymore. <laughs> and if you ask them, "So where are you moving to?" They say, "What do you mean?" Yeah. Uh, well, they'll find out soon enough. Um, but it, it's it's been in in a state of transition for at least fifteen years. And if you walk around, you know, it's so schizophrenic on you know on Clinton Street, which had the highest homicide rate of the whole Lower East Side, you know, in the bad old days in the eighties. Mm-hmm. You, you you get a, You have a little tiny Zagat seventeen toke restaurant next to a Dominican bling shop, next to, um, you know, a a wine bar, next to a, um, you know, a nail salon with, you know, a Latino nail salon, uh, next to uh, a very hip, very expensive pre-K school, which none of these Hispanic people send their kids to. Next to a muffin boutique, right, next right. to a sex toy shop, <laughs> next you know, and, and it just goes from door to door. It's it's like and it's startling, to,
1: yeah, yeah. And how it, you set that up in the novel, Richard, is that's like I think that's the first chapter or the pre chapter with the quality of life group is kind of cruising and they list off. Yeah, what Yeah, yeah, no, going no. I, I, I try to and do so, like
0: a whole yeah. incantation of like, yeah. you know, one block they go in tenement, 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 <laughs> tenement museum, you yeah. know. Um, <laughs> You know, there's a tenement museum down there, which is like this fantastic thing with painstakingly uh, historically restored apartments to different eras in the building's life.
1: Wait, Richard, let me let me stop you right there. We'll take a short break and come back and talk about the tenement museum because that's yeah, I'd like to talk about that. You're listening to WCBN FM, Ann Arbor Living Writers. If you're just joining us today on Living Writers, Richard Price, his book, Lush Life. So, we were talking about the tenement museum in the Lower East Side, Richard. So, well, um, I mean, the, but, so you were going to be you were you were given you're a trustee yeah, now.
0: I, I mean, the pl- <laughs> I mean, the place is, is so schizophrenic. You, you you have a tenement museum with historically restored tenements, surrounded on either side by tenement buildings that aren't <laughs> that much different than, than the, the 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 roped off rooms that they restored. Uh, right. And uh, the, I mean, that's an amazing but that's an amazing place. And I would go on these tours. You know, they have like six apartments historically accurate for different decades from 1865 to 1935 when the building was closed down and um i was fascinated I did all this reading and i did all these tours and at some point they just turned around and offered me a job because it, I, I was n- knowing more than they were um, and yeah, I became a trustee for like two seconds there. I, they wanted to rename their tours, and they, they, they tried to get me in there on their jam session, you know, different themes. Right. Um, but, I mean, that's, <laughs> so, you know, the problem. So you've problem, always got a
1: gig to go back to in the Lower East Side, basically.
0: Yeah. No. no. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's, but, you know, that's part of it. It didn't make the cut. It was just so much I saw and so much life. You know, and you know, somewhere in this text is a novel. Yeah. You know? So what
1: go? What happens to that part that you cut out? You said the family. Well, you tell yourself
0: and- that. Well, you know, I'll just use this and something else, but you never do. You know, it's just what you got to tell yourself to like not cry.
1: Right. You know. <laughs> oh, yeah. So so yeah, but I'm sure there's still some tears, right? Uh. Well, oh. I'm
0: going to recycle it some way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, so you've been. Um, we were talking off the air just briefly. How um there was like, uh, like I I found like the New York Times Book Review where um it was called the or you were called the Fonzie of literature. But now we've also got Balzac. Now right. we've got the most recent.
0: <laughs> well, well, Balzac. Russell Banks uh, gave a blurb for the back of the book where he. Call, called me Balzac, and the reviewers must have read the back of the book because maybe it was easier than reading the book.
1: Well, it's 455 pages, yeah. and you use every bit of space. It goes to the very end of the 455. Yeah, but, you
0: know, they, you know they'll, they'll pick up on the Balzac thing. so one guy will use it because Russell Banks used it, and then somebody will use it because the second guy used it. So I get Balzac, I get Dickens. Um, my favorite thing is I got if Rent was rewritten by Balzac, Oh, no. So you've got a musical in
1: you, too, now.
0: (laughs) uh, Maybe it should be, you know, Cousin Betty rewritten by Jonathan Larson or
1: something. (laughs) I guess you can never, you just have to hope for the best when people are making their... um...
0: I feel like, you know, you get set up, like, you know, because, oh, so now let's see if this guy's Dickens or, you know, he's more like Fenster here. Uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) But but Balzac, it was nice. You said that there was like, you got a snowball of Balzac, which I thought was, whoever thought, you probably never thought you were going to say that phrase. (laughs) I (laughs) got Only a writer, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Act. That's really good. Um, So... Let's see. What are some of these other? You also this little. I had a side question, very small. Um, in the films that you were screenwriter for, it, you were featured in cameos. Is that true? Like a yeah, Hitchcock well, I would, moment? Yeah, you know, I, did, I
0: had about eleven movies that I acted in. But what I would do is I'd say to the director, "Put me in a movie, and I won't complain about what you, <laughs> what you did to my script." And they believe me.
1: <laughs> and so what was like one of your favorite, you know, was, maybe it was more than a cameo.
0: Well, it was funny. I, I did a cameo on The Wire where I was a, I was an English teacher uh, teaching a prison class and we were discussing The Great Gatsby. And I was, you know, I mean, everybody, you know, some of the guys around the table weren't actors either. I think actually they, 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 they were on furlough from, from jail. But, you know, the, <laughs> this is part was, of their parole. <laughs> I mean, the main character was DeAndre, not DeAndre. Oh, I forgot the guy's name, but it was like the first guy of this. And he, he sort of got Gatsby and uh, I got a note from the director saying, well, you know, look, this, you just made a connection with this kid on, on a level. You know, look, look, you know, look, look a little animated when when he's putting it all together about Daisy. And so, you know, I, I didn't I'm not an actor. So I try <laughs> to look anim, animated and then I get then I got a note from David Simon and George Pelicanos, who who. Uh, we're behind the camera, and the note said, "You look like an effing bobblehead doll." <laughs> oh no! Right. And, and then, they, and then they decided to keep sending me notes every take. Like, um, your one note was like, "You're in prison. Act like a man." You know, I was like, they were, they were having such a great time. You know.
1: and meanwhile, you're still in front of the camera getting. Yeah, I'm
0: like, you know, just first, you know, well, it sounded like a good idea. <laughs> right.
1: You're in prison. Act <laughs> like a man. Oh, that words to live by. Um, but it's funny because you are like I don't know if you still teach Richard, but but in part of your past you were a writing teacher. Yeah, and, I mean,
0: yeah, it, for, I've been teaching since the '70s. Uh, in, in,
1: in like to ninth graders and to MFA students. Everything and
0: I, the, I taught at Princeton and Yale and elementary school in, in Jersey City and Newark. You know, uh, Newark. but yeah, you, know, you don't do that to make a living. You just do that because you want to do that or you want to. You know, you, you want some karma um, and sometimes you want some material. Do
1: um, <laughs> you mean in the, the, the Jersey City or do you mean in working Jersey with MFAs? City. Yeah. <laughs> no, <I'm just>
2: <laughs>
0: no, no. In, no, when I was working, um, well, I actually wound up uh, teaching in, at Columbia University in the same classroom where I was a student in the MFA program.
1: Well, that would be weird.
0: And that was about eight years after I graduated. And it was like a phenomenal class. There was Tamma Janowitz, Susan Minot. Mona Simpson, Stephen McCauley, uh Thomas Spanbauer, Kaylee Jones, and I was like so high the whole time I had no idea who I had, you know, but I was a great teacher because I could, I, I could teach to a fire hydrant, you know, and then I cleaned up my act and I came back and I was the worst <laughs> teacher anybody had ever seen. Somehow I didn't feel like talking anymore. Yeah. You know.
1: Yeah. Okay. So but,
0: uh, maybe we're going someplace we shouldn't go here. No, no, but, um,
1: <laughs> anywhere you want to go, Richard. Anywhere. I want to go home. <laughs> oh, no. I wish I could. I wish I could help with that. Um,
0: Actually, I don't want to go home.
1: <laughs> not for. Not yet? Just like no. stay on the road? No, no. Or, or just <laughs> hopefully it wasn't living writers that pushed you over. No. I feel like I'm the now at
0: this point I'm starting to feel like the flying Dutchman a little bit. You know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Well, don't worry. You don't, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> Endure, as one of my friends would say. Patrick would say that. Endure. I, I love that there's this one quote that you said about working with teaching um, the MFAs and the college writing. Is there any urgency in what they have to say? And that seemed to really. Well, here's the
0: critical thing that, you know, nobody can teach you how to be a good writer any more than anybody can teach you how to be a fast runner. You know, either you can or you can't. You can you they can if you have the chops somebody can teach you to be better, mm. but they can't get you to that first level of like talent
1: or I to mean, give you that obsessional quality where you're not gonna yeah, like give up or let go of it. The,
0: the thing that I find out the one thing a writer, writing teacher can do that's kind of critical is that you can help a, the, a young writer find what they want to write about because oftentimes people write blindly and if you don't have your story if you don't, if you can't locate something that you really want to get out, it's, it's just vamping and parlor tricks. And it'll be very frustrating. So the most important thing I can do is, you know, help the archer find the target, you know, and <laughs> right. it's like, why are you writing about this? Is this what you really want to be? Is this the story that you, that you feel like you really, really are burning to tell? Right. And if the answer is no, sometimes <laughs> the solution is, well, don't write. You know, just have a little bit more of a life.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know? live, live it. And start. Can I ask you also this other question, Richard? Because when you said Archer, I thought of the apples. Because I didn't understand. Is oh, this,
0: you talk about the she'll the, be apples. Oh, there's a store. <laughs> Shelby apples. Is is. Um, a, a Australian slang for everything's okay. Uh. And uh, what happens is that the daughter, very quickly, the daughter, uh, I mean, the, the sister of the murdered kid comes down to the Lower East Side. She's a high school kid, and she comes down, and she's never been there before, and she walks into a store called He'll, She'll Be Apples. And it's there's two six-foot-tall Australian women in a hole-in-the-wall boutique, and the kid puts... Puts on a jacket, off or, or this random jacket, and she looks in the mirror and there's a titanic hole, and there's no back to the jacket, and it shocks her. And she sort of, she's, all of a sudden, she just bursts into tears, but she's kind of, she loves this place. This, I mean, it just jars her into like, you know, loving where her brother went. And um, so I, I just like to name of the story like, meaning, don't, you know, you will survive. Everything will be okay.
1: Uh huh. Well, that's great. That's that's also like a nice. I'm getting
0: way. all choked up. Yeah.
1: I know. Me too. Not really. I, mean, no. <laughs> I see a small tear at the corner of your no. That's that's my blurred vision. I yeah, because I wish we had more time, Richard. Because I also, when you were saying earlier that you hung out with like the the restaurant manager and then two detectives, and I think, but how do you get close to cops? Like that must be a gift too that you well, have, where the, they don't. You
0: know, it's, that's like you know, you have to know somebody. If you go through regular channels, you'll ne- you'll never. You, by the time. In New York City. If you go through regular channels, you're a dead man. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I got
1: that's pretty clear. In they're, the book they're pretty as well.
0: casual in Jersey City. What the reason why I wrote three books taking place in Jersey City was because Jersey City was much more throw and go. And by the time I would have gotten permission to hang out with a meter maid in New York City, I've got to a trilogy in Jersey City.
1: <laughs> right. And on that note, Richard Price, thank you. You're Thanks welcome. for being on the program. And um, please come all the time to Living Writers anytime.
0: Okay, I'll be back tomorrow.
1: <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> You've been listening or streaming Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time, thanks, Richard.
2: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ryan Dolson, and this is your daily sports report. I am joined in here today in the studio by uh, no one. No one is here, but that's perfectly okay. I have plenty of topics I can discuss for the next 30 minutes. Of course, it is a beautiful day in Ann Arbor, and by beautiful, I mean absolutely not. It is cold (laughs) and rainy. Uh, going to class was not terribly pleasant today but that's okay even though it was a sunny day yesterday i did manage to go to class in my t-shirt today not a chance and uh, on friday which is actually we'll talk about more about this later but friday is the tigers opening day and as such a beautiful day for baseball it is expected to snow on that day so uh i think that'll be a fun one (laughs) but regardless i think the biggest piece of news at least for me thing i'm most excited to talk about is the end of the 2022 ncaa men's college basketball tournament march madness is officially over march madness goes into april i, I never really understood that as a kid but does not matter your national champions are of course the kansas jayhawks big news for me um i i have established this several times on the show in the past but uh i'm a very big kansas fan i got lots of family some of which were. I hope are listening uh, right now. Um, rock chalk baby, it was uh, never in any doubt. By which I mean, of course, it was in great doubt. Their uh, first game in the Final Four, the very first one they played, was against number two-seeded Villanova. Final score was 81 to 65. And um, if I'm being honest, this game was kind of over from the very beginning. Kansas immediately just just dominated the game. They could not miss. Three